this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's text is a well-known text. The passage is from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. It is the reading for the first Sunday of Easter, or Easter Sunday, and that happens to be in the year C cycle of the lectionary on April 17, 2022. As we take a look at Luke chapter 24, I want to explore some themes that perhaps we don't often pay as much attention to. The the narrative of Jesus' resurrection is such a powerful and important story for us as followers of Jesus that Oftentimes, uh, some of the smaller nuances or accents, if you will, to the story uh, can sometimes be overlooked. And it's not that they're hidden necessarily. It's just simply that they're they're always not at the forefront of our mind when we hear the Easter story, which for us as followers of Jesus is the most important story that we have in our faith. And the power of remembering the story and allowing the Holy Spirit to bring the power of resurrection into our lives is something that is critical for each and every one of us. I want to first talk about the discovery of the empty tomb by those who went to it on that first Easter morning. It says that on the very first day of the week that some women came to the tomb bringing some spices they had prepared. I think it's important that we get the timeline quite clear in what's happened here is that they arrive on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Because in the Jewish tradition, Saturday is the seventh day. Saturday is Sabbath. And so Sunday then is the first day of the week. And Jewish days are not measured like our days on a kind of a traditional calendar where our day begins at midnight. In the Jewish calendar, days begin at sunset. And so what's happened here quite likely is that when Jesus died on Friday afternoon, uh, they hurriedly placed him in a tomb. They didn't really have time to prepare his body correctly. They just simply put him in the tomb because to have him not in the tomb by Friday sunset would have meant that Jesus would have been hanging on the cross on Sabbath and no one would have been able to do anything except leave him there essentially until Saturday night. And so the decision was made that since he had already died that they would remove him from the cross on Friday and place him in his tomb. And so when um, the day ends on Friday with sunset, A lot of the preparation work for Jesus's proper burial had not been done yet. And so what begins to happen at this point is that uh, uh, the Sabbath begins on Friday night and it ends on Saturday night. So it ends at sunset on Saturday. So it's quite likely what the women did is they prepared all of the spices Saturday evening and then prepared to go first thing in the morning on Sunday to open the tomb again, go in and really now fully prepare Jesus's body for its burial. When they arrive at the tomb, the tomb is open. Now, often these ancient tombs had some sort of disc, if you will, of stone rolled in front of it, or it could have been sometimes a plug put in place, like a smaller hole that had a plug put in it made out of another piece of stone. Regardless of what the actual tomb looked like, they found that it had been open. Now, tombs in the first century were hewn from a cliff usually, so you didn't necessarily build a tomb out of materials often as we see them in the 21st century. 
They were cut out of the side of a cliff. So imagine starting to dig a hole in the side of a cliff and then carving out the rock so that there is uh, places for bodies to be laid inside of the equivalent of what we might describe as a small cave. They were often family tombs. You'd have multiple people uh, buried together in one tomb. Sometimes they were just for one person. They were designed to be re-entered. So the notion of having a tomb that's sealed that no one would ever open again is simply not a correct understanding of how this works. Tombs are designed to be opened and closed as necessary. Luke uses some interesting language here that when the the women arrive at the tomb, it says in verse 2, that they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. There are many ways Luke could have rendered this language in his gospel. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus had been resurrected. But the way Luke tells the story is so important is that he tells it strictly through the lens of those who are experiencing it. These women don't know that he's been resurrected. They haven't processed or understood any of that information yet. All it says is they went into the tomb and they did not find him. And then the story begins to unfold from there. Uh, Peter's story is a bit similar in the standpoint that he goes to the tomb in verse 12. It says, nevertheless, Peter got up, ran to the tomb, and when he stooped and looked in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his house. So even Peter doesn't really have a sense of processing what's gone on when he steps into the tomb. The discovery for both the women and for Peter helps us understand what I think is an important key passageway here, and that God acts ahead of us, not behind us. That we Methodists have a way of describing this kind of grace. This is prevenient grace. And if you've never heard that word before, I want to explain it very briefly. Uh, Prevenient grace is a word that we use, prevenient, to describe how God is acting in our life before we become aware of it. And so um, you've heard of the word intervene before, which is to somehow engage in a situation or a place or a time uh, to change its outcome. Prevenient is God's work that goes before us, God's intervening in our lives, if you will, uh, before we have an awareness of it. And this motif is rich in the Bible, and the idea of prevenient grace is everywhere. That this motif of darkness in the story is rich. You know, Luke says that it's early on that first day, at early dawn, they come at night. And in the Bible, darkness is such a rich image. Oftentimes, it's described as being somewhat nefarious and chaotic. And there's this other theme in Scripture that's very, very unique, in that darkness is the space and the time in which God works. God works at night. In other words, God is working when people aren't looking. And daylight comes and reveals what God did at night. Days begin with evenings, sunsets in the Jewish tradition. And so the activity of God comes first. Then we see it. There's this kind of assurance that God somehow is always at work, always moving, always beckoning, always drawing. God is always inviting people. And often we discover it in a way that is hard for us to understand and process, and we can even be confused by it. And this confusion plays an important part in this story, but it's a confusion based on the act of God's grace in such an overwhelming way that it can be difficult to understand because it's so filled with wonder 
enjoy. The response was one of confusion. The text tells us in verse 4, while they were perplexed about this. You know, Peter, in a similar fashion, he came to the tomb. And when he came in verse 12, he saw the linen wrappings and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. That word for marvel uh, shares some relationship with this word of per- being perplexed or confused. It, it denotes not understanding what's gone on. Both the women and Peter find that the tomb is empty, but Luke takes care to note that when Peter looks in the tomb, he sees the linen wrappings only that were placed on Jesus' body, but no body. Oftentimes it might be claimed that somebody came in the middle of the night and stole the body of Jesus from the tomb. But if they had stolen the body, they would have taken the body wrapped. They wouldn't have unwrapped the body and then taken it. And so the fact that Peter finds the, the linen wrappings sitting in the tomb is indicative of the fact that something very unusual has happened. This isn't a, a crime that's been committed, that the clues at the scene are indicative that something else has happened. And so this is why a little bit everyone's a little disoriented, a little confused. So in the case of the two women, in the midst of their perplexion, two figures appear to them, and they appear in bright, gleaming white. And this is a um, language that Luke is using that's very similar to the transfiguration story of Jesus, where Jesus appears in gleaming white. Now, what Luke does in this story is also interesting in that he leaves out any uh, notion that the women are afraid. The text says that they simply averted their eyes, maybe because the, the radiance of the messengers was so bright. But the other gospel stories tell us about those who came to the tomb being afraid. And in Luke's story, there is no fear. There's no fear amongst these women who come early in the morning and discover this amazing scene. The messengers speak to the women and offer them a mild rebuke. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? Luke's language is so peculiar here. The living one, the one who is living. So as the women come with their their confusion, not understanding what's happened. The, the angelic messengers also share their confusion with the woman, and their confusion is, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? And this opens up the key passageway for us about confusion and disorientation when God's prevenient grace is realized. We see it for the first time. We see the hand of God having moved in darkness when we didn't notice it. And it's this, is that we're conditioned for convention and confusion. You know, often our days are governed, well, by the mundane. We have a lack of awareness of how the holy, how God is at work in our days. And to be honest, I think we as human beings are more confused than we let on to be. We focus on the work to be done, the tasks to be completed, Whether we're working or whether we're retired or whether we're a student, we're focused on that which is in front of us. So it's true that not very often do we take time to consider the meaning and purpose in all of that which we're doing. Meaning and purpose in our lives are reflections that oftentimes we avoid. We spend very little time with them. We live in more confusion, I think, than we care to admit. 
because we oftentimes don't understand the big picture of how God is at work in our life, at work in the lives of others, and at work in the world. And so we just simply don't pay attention to those questions because they might be confusing for us. To which the angelic messengers might say to us the very same thing they say to the woman. Why are you looking for the living one among the dead? This confusion now yields to a form of remembering in this story. You know, the messengers tell the women the essential proclamation that he has risen, that Jesus has risen. And they invite the women to remember what Jesus told them in Galilee. It says in verse 6, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise from the dead. You see, the words of Jesus about this that he spoke in Galilee and other places have little meaning. They, they don't register the way they needed to register. And so the invitation of the angelic messengers isn't to do anything other than to remember what Jesus told them. And then the explanation they give them about how Jesus is handed over to sinful men and he's crucified the third day he rises from the dead, that's the essential creed of the gospel. They, they basically embody the very essence of the gospel to these women. And so when they remembered that, they took action. And we'll, we'll talk more about the action they took in a moment. But what I just want to center on here is what the angel invite, the angelic messengers ask the women to do. Remember. See, without remembering the words, the words appear as nonsense. They're without a view of God's action. In other words, the things that Jesus told them that would happen didn't make any sense to them until they happened. And then even when they did happen, they were left in a place of confusion. And so the angelic messengers are essentially saying, tie the story back together. Remember what you were told. And that opens up a third key passageway for us here, that remembering the story is as important as the story itself. You see, if the story's just some kind of fable or myth, it loses all capacity to shape the present. I know there are those that would argue that, that the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't really matter as much as the realization of some form of resurrection in our life. And, and, and I would disagree with that notion. I, I think the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters to us. It matters to us when we remember what Jesus has done in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So many of the things we do, like Christian worship, Bible study, small groups, they're all for the purpose of remembering. We're, we're jarred back to life when we remember these mighty, powerful acts of God as recorded in Scripture, the powerful acts of God even in our own lives. When we remember God's grace in Scripture in our lives, there is a power that is released. God is at work, often at night in darkness when we don't see it. Remembering allows us to see it. In a sense, remembering is like bringing light to the darkness so that we can see what God has done. 
So these moments we have in the life of Christian community, of communion, baptism, marriages, even memorials, they help us remember. And when we do, when we tie the wires together, when we remember things, something amazing happens. Once the women remember, something remarkable happens. It's witnessing. Now, once the women remember, they immediately leave and report what happened to the 11 disciples. Luke has already taken note that Judas has committed suicide. And so there's only 11 disciples left. So it tells us about how the women return and tell the 11 what had happened. It's only here that Luke names some of the women and that they're Jesus' disciples too. There's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So Luke makes it clear that there's these three and there are some other women who all went to do the same thing. These are all part of the entourage of Jesus' disciples. Now, the 11 certainly had their place amongst Jesus' disciples, but we must never make the mistake of believing that those were the only 11 disciples Jesus had. These women are named, named for the first time when they become witnesses. So this remembrance of what has happened, this tying of the wires together makes them witnesses. And the essence here of being a witness is that the event is now recalled with meaning. So now they're no longer confused about what happened, but what's happened now begins to have meaning for them because they remembered it. So when the 11 hear it, when the women report it to them, they hear it as nonsense. Why? Because they haven't remembered it yet. This is such a key motif in Luke's gospel, the idea of remembering things. The 11 haven't remembered. And, and so sometimes folks will tell this story from the standpoint that the women in the story are actually the ones who are much more insightful and understanding than the men. And, and I would argue that there may be a layer of truth to that, but I think the, the more apparent layer in the story is simply that the remembering hasn't occurred and it happens in a spectrum, that the women have had an interaction with these angelic messengers that have invited them to remember. They become the very first witnesses or evangelists of the church, and others will become evangelists well. So the sequence in which that happens for people, I don't think is nearly as important as that it actually happens for people. You know, Peter, it says, comes to the tomb after the woman report it. He comes in, he marvels at what has happened, but he hasn't remembered it yet. He hasn't put it back together. And so it says he goes home until he has an opportunity to put it together. This opens up a key passageway for us here that when we see the power of God at work in us, then God can work through us. Remembering, connecting, understanding, experiencing, all those things make us witnesses. But take note, it's natural. It's not forced. Notice the women. It doesn't say in the text that after the angelic messengers spoke to them, that they had a meeting to deliberate about how and when they would become witnesses. They moved almost, as the stories unfold, almost out of 
impulse. It's like natural. It's not forced at all. Once the connection is made, they want to tell and they tell the 11. So Easter faith for us is when that connection is made, when the connection between what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus makes its connection into our life and the life of those around us and community and the life of this world. Easter's power, in a sense, is only fully realized when we remember it, when we can hold the story for what it is. Otherwise, it's just a fanciful fable and that the centrality of other things in Easter begin to take the place of the power of remembering what God has done in the story. The story is everything. Without this story, we are lost. With it, our life is totally filled with hope. That's it for this week. If you have comments or reflections on this week's podcast, I invite you to go to my website, revcraig.com. Revcraig.com, click on news in the upper right corner and then select podcast from the menu and then click on an episode and you'll see below the podcast itself, there's a place where you can leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.